0: Have you ever thought to yourself that people say weird things in church? (laughs) Sometimes we say weird things in church. And there's a story that goes behind the weird things. But if you don't know the story, all all you got was the weird things. And so, when we just spend a couple of minutes breaking chains, what's the point? What are you talking about? Why does that matter? Well... There's a story, and the the idea is we live in a place, most of us, where we're bound by something. We're held down, we're held up, we're frustrated by something. And metaphorically, we live in chains. We live bound up, not free to move, not free to live, not free to dance the dance of life. We're encumbered in a great image would be something that you've all seen before. It's the image of um, Marley in A Christmas Carol, right? When Joseph Marley comes to visit Ebenezer Scrooge, he's carrying all these chains and weights. And I mean, the story is a little bit different about why he's got those, but that's a, that's a great image. Most of us live with something. We're addicted to something. We're highly prone to something. We can't seem to break a bad habit. We can't seem to get along well. Those are all chains. Those are all things that hold us up or hold us down. And when we sing a song like that, what we are saying is the power in the name of Jesus. Well, the power in the name of Jesus is not um, magic. You don't fling the name of Jesus at something. You don't wave your hand. But because of the story of Jesus and what he's done, he has the power to break these chains that bind us. So when we say he has the power, or he, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, what we're saying is there's the power to be free. And so you think about what your thing is. You, you, don't, you don't have to tell anybody right now, but you know you've got a thing, your anger, your lust. You, you know that there's greed that's gripping at you. You know that there's Um, self-loathing. I can't seem to ever think that I'm okay the way I am. You know that there's something in there that is holding you down. Your frustration with other people. Why can't they just see it right? Those are the things that we are saying. Jesus has the power to break in us, to bring us to a place of freedom. And that is a place where we would all love to be, where we could live truly at peace, And in our world, we use peace quite often to mean no actual fighting. But that's not the way God describes peace. God describes it as shalom. Shalom is a place where we are at peace with all. As in, there's no enmity. A place where we're not waiting for the next battle to start kind of peace. A place where there's no battle to be fought. Where we are all treated well and kindly and taken care of. This is shalom. This is the peace that we speak of in there. Sometimes we say things that are weird. Sometimes we need to talk about why we say weird things. Okay? So that was, why, that was your introduction there. Um, hey, we've got handouts for you to follow along with what we're going to do. You can also follow along on these screens. We're going to take you through that. If you want to follow online, you can use your, uh, your phone. We have uh, internet here that you can use to log on. Use the free app called Uversion. You go to the bottom right corner, there's a more button, look under more, then there's events, search into one, and all the stuff will come up for you. All of our notes for today, announcements of what's coming up, there's an online giving link. When we talk about giving, people get, oh, you know, church is all about money. We are about thriving, okay? We don't want you to survive, we want you to thrive. And the way that you will thrive, part of that is going to be learning to live with what you have, but part of the essence of life that gives depth and meaning to it is generosity. It just, it just does. That's the way it works. So there's the, the quick thought there. There's an online giving, there's envelopes at the back if you'd like to do that part. Um, all right. Hey, do you know what? Happy birthday. T- today is our sixth birthday. So yeah. That was thunderous excitement, right? <laughs> Uh, six birthdays today, so there's cake downstairs because it wouldn't be a birthday if there wasn't cake, even if I didn't think of it myself. Somebody else who's wiser than I am made sure that there was cake today. So we are six years old. Yesterday we had our grand opening, which was a nanny. It was a shindig. We had a whole bunch of people here from all over the place, and it was really, really nice. My favorite part was when we had pastors from the um, churches that are around us, um, some in our, in our own denominational family, some just in our, in our um, locality, our ge- geographical family, came up and they spoke blessing on us. And it was, it was a beautiful thing to hear again that the people of God can unite, that we can come together, we can grow into one, and we can do this thing that we were called to do. And it's just beautiful to be around it because it seems also so rare. Um, we're getting back to this. We, we, we had a month off where we were doing this thing called Outflow, where we tried to take what we had talked about in January and applied it to the actual living out and, and some of the practices that we have that go around the world. So that's what we had started with. And so as we come back, and we're in week four now of um, Base Camp, I got to ask you do, you, do you remember anything? <laughs> do you remember anything about what we talked about before? Do you, do you feel like you're current? Um, has it all kind of become a little bit foggy? Um, have you been wrestling with any of those questions that I said, you really got to think about this one? If you, if you want to have any sort of relationship with faith or if you want to not have a relationship with faith, it's still a question that you need to answer. What about and how do we do those things? If you, if you don't, if you're feeling foggy, if you don't have any sort of recollection, you can go back. We have these things recorded. They're on the podcast. I would, I would suggest this should be a fantastic thing. I don't try to sell a lot of stuff. Sell, it's all free. Um, But this would be great for us to go forward together thinking the same way. So that's the back part. The quick uh, recap is that faith has a starting point. Everything has a starting point. There was a time that there wasn't, then there's a time that it is. The place where that change is called the starting point. But sometimes we forget that faith has a starting point too. And it begins somewhere. And once upon a time, you didn't believe anything or, or you weren't sure what you believe. And then somehow, I don't know what the story is for you, someone came along and they told you some stuff or they, they said, hey, look at this, um, or they told you some stories. And you go, hey, I have an interesting um, relationship with like that. And so you, maybe, maybe you jumped in and you, you, many of you might have been younger at that time and you thought, okay, I've got this. But then, then I grew up. Uh, I became more sophisticated in my thinking. I became more mature in my understanding and and I started to notice that there was a gap between what I was told and what I was experiencing. These are the stories that people described to me. This is where I was living and I was saying, I don't know what to do with this gap. I don't know how these things line up. Um, And Most people don't deal well with conclusions. We don't know what to do and so very rarely does a person say, okay. I have looked at all the evidence, I know now, and I have chosen to walk away from everything there because I have found it all to be false. Well, that's not what people do, right? There was a day that maybe you've got kind of this niggling, bothersome question in your head, and you don't like feeling unsure, we don't like doubting, but we also don't really like studying, we don't really like to pursue it, and so we kind of let stuff linger in the background. But the rest of our life, well, we just kept moving forward. We we didn't intentionally abandon faith, but we kind of got distracted. Um, And and maybe we were just walking away from it. Maybe, Maybe we thought that it would just kind of follow me. If it's a real thing, it will follow me all by itself, and I won't have to work at it. I won't have to engage with it. That's where many of us are. So we're in the middle of building a base camp. A base camp is a starting point or, or maybe a restarting point for faith. And what we're trying to do is target it more towards adults, not so much towards the way that we would talk just to kids. This is a place that we'll be able to come back to later on or maybe a place that you can direct somebody else to to say, let's start to talk about this, this, this early part, these basics, this um, groundwork. So we're calling that a base camp, a place that we can come back to. Now, honestly, as we, we realize You've all been alive for a number of years, and it's really, really difficult to sort of wipe wipe the slate clean and say, now everything you know, just forget everything you know, because we don't work that way, right? What we find is that we're all tied to memories, and we have impressions, and we have feelings, some of them good and some of them bad, and they're all tied to stuff that happened before. But what we're trying to do is to take it back to a beginning place. So we're going to be asking some of the fundamental kind of questions together, and we're going to go on this journey, this road trip in earnest pursuit of Jesus as a group and not as individuals. Because if you really want to understand and experience God, you can't do it on your own. You can do parts of it on your own, but the whole thing, what it really looks like, is always done in a community. And so today we're going to tackle something that we've all wrestled with before, whether you've never been in church before, whether you come all the time, whether you're interested or disinterested, we've all wrestled with this thing. Today, we're going to look at one of those things that we might say, this is one of the big ones. This is one of the easily identifiable, and identifiable parts of that whole faith religion thing. Today, and you're going to be so excited, I know, today we're going to deal with the role of rules, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Every religion has got rules. Every religion has a rule maker, and guess what? It never gets to be us, does it? Unless, of course, you start your own religion. Then, of course, you can make whatever rules you want. You can make your own holidays, like festivus for the rest of us. You remember that? Just for me? Wow, I feel like I'm on my own here. All right. All religions have rules, and so some of the ones that we would have heard at, you hear about like the, the five pillars of Islam. There's the Ten Commandments. There's the Sermon on the Mount. Here's a list of rules. There's rules, principles, guiding documents, something that focuses people, and every religion has them, okay? Um, Now, because we don't get to make the rules, we find that we are frequently kind of pushing up against them, you know, like your face pressed up against the glass. There's a rule, don't really like it, and we get stuck at them. We get focused on those things. And I'm not going to poke fun at any other groups, but within the Christian circle, we've got lots of divisions. And there's lots of different things where people see things just a little bit differently. There's Catholics, and then there's Orthodox, and there's Protestants. And don't even get me started about the Protestants, because in there, we've got just about a million different versions of what we do. So as I was growing up, I got to watch and over here, because that's what kids do. Parents don't know they're doing it, but kids are doing it all the time. And I'm watching what's happening around me. And I knew that there were some Baptists over there and there were some Presbyterians over there. And then I heard stuff, right? Every group has got their own individual kind of set of rules, but I heard something about the Methodists. And I heard that the Methodists don't have enough rules. And that was sort of the way that I was growing up. Um, all of these systems, all of them have rules. And we wanted to make sure that there would be enough guilt and shame to go around for everyone. So we had to keep making the rules. And we knew that there was a judgment culture. And we knew that we had all been in a place where we had been judged for something somewhere at some point, and we were all really afraid of being judged again. You might still feel that way. Why, are these, why do we have all of these rules? Why are rules such a big part of religion? Why do we bump into all of this rule stuff when we try to just get to the essence of stuff? Why is religion so full of it all the time? And let's be honest, the real problem is that's also the stuff that we want to rebel against. Either we do rebel against it, or we, we, we kind of want to, and you say, you can't tell me what to do, blah, blah, blah. And we think that that's not making a new rule, right? We're just making rules for ourselves. Odds are pretty good that there is someone here today who has left a church or who has left an entire religion because of the rules. They said, I just, I don't want to be part of all that. So today, in a general kind of way, we're going to talk about the relationship between religion, and rules, and specifically what rules have to do with a God that says that he cares about us. The first thing you need to know is that rules assume a relationship. Whenever you have rules, there's some kind of relationship. If you are accountable to a set of rules, you are in a relationship. You might be in something that we could call the family model. And you were born into a family, and then your, par- your parents started making rules. They didn't make rules to make you part of the family. You were already a part of the family, and they established rules. And the rules probably adjusted over time. You had rules as a kid, and then maybe there's a new set of rules at junior high, and maybe you had rules at high school, and rules at uh, the college age, and so on. You kept growing until you outgrew the rules. You grew up, and you grew out of the rules, but you were still... Part of the family. When you were younger, there were rules not to become part of the family, but because you were part of the family. Your parents set rules for you. And sometimes we like them better than the, our friends' parents' rules, and sometimes you didn't like them better than your friends' parents' rules. But parents only set rules for their own kids. And we have all met kids from other families that we would like to set a couple of rules for right? There are times that you would like to suggest to your neighbor's children that things will go better for everyone if you just, well, never leave the house. And as soon as we move, I want you to feel free to come back outside and see the sun. But until then, just stay in your house. I'm assuming that you don't, but maybe you do. We don't tend to call our neighbors and say, hey, can I talk to your daughter, please? Yes, thank you. Right. Now, Marianne, have you finished your homework? Marianne, why why is your bedroom light still on? It's way past your bedtime. Bedtime was two hours ago. We don't do that, right? Sometimes we want to, but we don't do that because they're not your kids. In the family model, rules are for members of the family. They might very well be good rules for other people, but others are not bound by them. The rules don't make you part of the family. The rules are because you are part of the family. Model number two, the club model. In this model, you agree to a certain number of rules or a collection of of rules in order to begin the relationship. So when you join a club, they give you a contract and you read it or you're supposed to read it and you agree to it, and the way that they know that you agree to it is because you sign it, once they get you to do what they want you to do, then you can be in the club. But then if you break the rules, what are you? You're out of the club, right? You're ex-members. The club member could also be understood like an employee model or a fraternity model. For family, the rule you get the rules because the relationship is established. For a club, you get the rules first and then the relationship is established. And wherever you are, there are rules. Wherever you are accountable to a set of rules, you are in a relationship of some sort. Now, if you take these systems and you transpose them over onto religious systems, you can see why this gets confusing right? People don't know what they're supposed to think. Well, which one is it? Where do I really stand? Am I in with God? No matter what I do, are we stuck together? Here are the rules to live by, now get going. Or here are the rules, you better keep behaving or you're going to get kicked out. Or is it maybe more like the neighborhood association model? Are you in because, well, all people are in? But you can expect to get some angry letters in your mailbox. I can't kick you out, but boy, I want to make you feel unwelcome. Until you follow the right rules the right way. Here's some shame for you. I'll never be fully happy with you as a human being, but I will put up with you. And hearing those options... We're all going to start to think differently. Some people immediately start thinking theologically. What does God have to say? What is what I believe about God? How does that fit into here? And other people are going to respond emotionally. How do I feel about that? I don't know if I like the way that sounds. And there's no doubt that there's a huge emotional component to the whole God thing. Is there a God? Is there not? Is that God personal? Or is it just an entity, a force? What mixes it all up is you might have been told different things. You might have been taught family, but you feel like you got shifted into the club model. Some of you were taught club, and so you've never, ever felt family and don't know what that would even be like. Boy, oh boy, if we could right now have all the stories that are rising to your mind come up, right? If we could tell those stories right now, wouldn't that be something? Anybody have a great shunning story? Yeah, we we don't want to go there. Even if we don't embrace the Christian story, at some point, you will wrestle with how does my behavior line up, and what is my behavior supposed to line up to? Am I okay? What standard are we going by? Honestly, does my opinion actually matter on something of this magnitude? Am I in? Am I out? I say I'm a good person. But what what does it mean to be good? How am I supposed to know? So, to help that discussion along, let's go back to one of the oldest documented set of laws ever given. It's not the oldest, but it slides in probably in about third oldest in human history. It's the most documented because it's found its way into Jewish literature. It's found its way into Islamic literature, and it's found its way into Christian literature. It's the most well-known. And so now, without further ado, allow me to introduce you to the one, the only, the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you love those. These bad boys rolled out in about 1446 B.C., and they've been a big hit right from the start. The story goes that these laws, these commandments were given by God to Moses. That's what the Jews believe. That's what Muslims believe. That's what Christians believe. You, you need to work on that. You need to think about that on your own. What do you believe about that? Now, these rules are famous. Almost everyone has heard of the Ten Commandments. But what's even more amazing is that almost no one can tell you all 10 of them. It's incredible, but it's true. How hard is it really to remember 10 things? If my kids were here, they could tell you 10 Pokemon at the drop of a hat. There was a time when basically everyone here could tell you Jennifer Aniston's 10 boyfriends. That The 10 Commandments are like past Stanley Cup contenders. I know they exist, but I can't seem to remember what any of them are. They're just there. So two of the Ten Commandments sort of rise to the top. They come up right away. Thou shalt not committeth adultery. Thou shalt not murdereth. We know that. Maybe there's something about being honest. I don't know. Thou shalt not stealeth. The rest are kind of less known, and, and, and that means how important can they really be, right? If I don't know them, they must really not be all that important. The other thing that you probably don't know about the Ten Commandments, but after today you will... You can use this on your ordination exam when that comes up. If someone were to hand you a Bible and say, are you sure it's in there? And you would say, well, I'm sure the Ten Commandments are in there. Somewhere. They're in the Bible here. Where? So I'm going to give you the insider info. So the next time this comes up at a party, or the next time you're at an office mixer, you can just roll with this. And you'll look like you are completely in control. So repeat after me. You can do this even if you're listening to the podcast later on as well. Say it out loud. Exodus 20. All right? Exodus 20. One more time. Deuteronomy 5. Wait, what? That's right. They're so good that they're in there twice. So good that they had to repeat them. That's an excellent question for you to wrestle with this week. Why? Why? are the Ten Commandments in the Bible twice. Why are they in there? They're Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're at Exodus 20, at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Before we go diving in on this, remember that some weeks ago, I'm saying remember like you do remember, and then I'm going to remind you. We were talking about Abraham, all right? Abraham was promised that he was going to be a great nation. Can you show me Abraham? Abraham, yeah, great. Um, He was going to be a great nation. The problem was that Abraham didn't have any children. He was old and getting older, and maybe just a little bit panicky. So Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they have a little chat, and she says, I can't seem to have any children, but do you know who can? My handmaiden can. Boom! Let's try that, and let's see if we can't get God's problems solved for him. So Abraham and the handmaiden, Hagar, go setting about fixing things on their own, and along comes a bouncing baby boy who's named Ishmael. Right. Then a little later on, God's promise is fulfilled, and Sarah is pregnant, and she has a son who's named Isaac. So it turns out that Abraham actually ends up with two sons, So this gets interesting, and that's another reason why you should totally go and read this story yourself this week sometime. This is where it gets interesting or complicating. Depends on whether you like your glass half full or half empty. In Islam, Ishmael is considered the son of blessing. In Judaism and in Christianity, Isaac is considered the son of blessing. And right there, Right there we have a big disagreement that sends these major religions off in different directions. So just for full disclosure, there is some teaching about the idea that Ishmael is the son of blessing. The problem is that it is taught about 600 years after Jesus by the prophet Muhammad who brought all of this info together and began weaving his narrative that tied All of the people that he was talking to, back to Ishmael, back to Abraham, back to God. So Isaac had a couple of sons. One of his sons was named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became what we know as the 12 tribes. God then changed Jacob's name to Israel. And now we have Israel and its 12 tribes we got all that up there? Right. That takes us to the place where we have the Islamic nations and the Israelite nation. That's where these things come from. So if you're wondering how does it all fit together, well, we're doing some history right now. Joseph was one of the brothers. He was not liked by his brothers because he got a coat of many colors, more recently known as the Technicolor dream coat. The brothers put him in a pit sold them to slave traders, and then shipped them off to Egypt. While there, he became the prime minister of Egypt. What a great story. That's your rags to riches in a serious way. Another great story for you to check out. There's famine all across the land. Famine means no food. But Joseph heard from God about it in advance, planned ahead, stored up food. Joseph's brothers are in deep food trouble, and they hear that there's lots of food in Egypt. So eventually, they pack up all of Abraham's family, his great-great-grandkids, and the whole thing, and they ship everyone off to Egypt. They prosper, and they multiply in Egypt, and become a nation. So much so that the Egyptians get nervous, and they tell Pharaoh, buddy, you got to do something about these Hebrews before they cause us big trouble. So the solution, let's enslave them. 400 years. 400 years in slavery, multiple generations, and all they know is slavery. But still, they told each other stories about Father Abraham. Now, do you know any of your relatives from 400 years ago? Even with all the technology that we have at our disposal, we don't know these relatives Kids, there was a man who was named Abraham, and God promised him that one day his family would be a nation. Hand up in the back, right? So are are we that nation? We're slaves. Something didn't work out right. Don't worry. God promised Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through him. Hand up again at the back. You know we're slaves, right? Right? Is this the blessing for everyone else? Yeah, I know we're slaves. And here's the problem. Religion always gets us into sticky situations in the real world. The, but what about right now, right here kind of questions? How do we balance what I'm supposed to believe, remember, with what I'm experiencing? Just like you. Just like the questions that we have, this is what I was taught, this is what I'm experiencing, they don't line up. The same issue was back in those days. How do I balance with what I see around me? So for 400 years, there were stories about Abraham, and he had a son who had a son, and there were dreams and famine, and then a lot of food, and then there was prosperity, then slavery. Most of that was so long ago. All of those promises were so long ago as if any of those promises are still going to come true now. You just keep telling us these stories so that we're going to have faith and we're going to have hope and we won't give up. And then out of the blue, one day, a man shows up. Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says the big line, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. So Moses said, okay, God warned you, watch this. And then nature, nature just freaks out. There's locusts and boils and gnats and frogs and animals dying. and One thing after another until the whole Egyptian economy is wrecked. Everything that they just took for granted. Everything that they gave credit to another place, another God, someone else in charge, everything just crashed. And eventually Moses leads the people of Israel away from Egypt. So all this is very unexpected at the very least. So side note here, just in case you didn't know, the name Moses is mentioned in the Quran more than any other name. Side note, Uh, the Moses story is not just a Jewish thing. It's not just a Muslim thing. It's not just a Christian thing. This is history. The story that goes along here is history. It's not just a nifty old story. So the people head, and Moses, they head out, and about three weeks later, they end up at a place known as Mount Sinai. Next scene, we have Moses going up the mountain to get God's law. Keep in mind, the people at the bottom of the mountain, all they've ever known, all their parents have ever known, all their grandparents have ever known, all their great-grandparents have, great have ever known is slavery. They've always had some version of their own society, but it all existed within the context of Egyptian slavery. And according to the story, they were at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up, and God gives this revelation. Revelation. Here's your first set of laws, and part of that is the Ten Commandments, and you can read all about those in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, excellent, yes, you're doing very, very well, it's Exodus 20, or Deuteronomy 5, yeah, we're going to read the intro together, now the intro, you'll, you'll, you know the prelude, right, the prelude to the Ten Commandments, obviously one of the most quoted passages, ha, 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 um, preludes are the part of the book that you normally skip over, right? I, got, I don't have time to read the prelude. Just get me to the talking points, right? Give me the highlight reel. But this, the, the, um, the prelude here is so important because it sets up and it gives us a clue, some sort of insight into how religion and God and rules all fit together because that's what we're trying to get to, right? So here it is, Exodus 20, starting at verse 1, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord, your God, who, wait, wait, wait a second. What are you saying with this your thing? If you are our God, that would make us your people. Yes. Well, when did that happen? I I don't recall that going on. I feel like this is the first time really hearing about this. We've been in slavery for 400 years, and then you drag us out into the desert with a whole bunch of miracles, and now... Suddenly, you're our God and we are your people. We haven't even done anything. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm the Lord your God who has done something for you and you have done nothing for me. I'm the Lord your God who sent a deliverer into your darkest time when you had given up hope. When Abraham had become just a fairy tale that you tell your children so they don't give up hope. I did what nobody expected. I sent that deliverer into Egypt to come for you. And I dragged you out. I have done the miraculous and I have done the spectacular for you. And you have done nothing for me. Well, you're right. We didn't even know the rules. We didn't even know what we're supposed to do. Have we kept the rules? Have we been breaking the rules? We we, we don't know where we stand with you at all. So God says, I know. Before, before I give you the rules, I want you to know you are mine and I am yours. Let's get that clear before we start talking about anything else. So a really interesting thing happened in Egypt. After the plagues, at the end, the Egyptian economy is devastated. Pharaoh is flummoxed, and he just doesn't know what to do anymore. God speaks to his people through his prophet Moses. God has one thing he wants you to do. There are no Ten Commandments yet. What is it? What's the one thing? While we're still in Egypt... God says he wants you to trust him. God's message for you is simply this. Trust me. Tonight, before you go to bed, I want you to slaughter a sheep, a lamb. This is something they did all the time. It's not like it's a weird thing. And I want you to have a meal together. Also, something that they did all the time but I want you to take the blood from that sheep, that lamb, and I want you to put it over the top of the door, and and I want you to put it on the sides of the doors. Why would we do that? That's gross. God says, trust me. But honestly, what difference is it going to make if I actually do that or not? God says, trust me. No, seriously, what difference does it make if I do those things that you ask? Trust me. So the majority of the Jewish people had a special meal and a special time together that night. And they slaughtered a sheep. And they took the blood of that sheep and they put it on the top of the door and they put it on the sides of the door. They packed up everything because they were told that the next day they would be leaving. Leaving? Really? Really? We've been in slavery for 400 years, but we're leaving tomorrow. Trust me. But that's really hard to do. This whole thing that you're asking of me seems incredibly unlikely. I don't know what it's like to follow a God. Trust me. And that night, the angel of death came into Egypt and it passed over every household where the blood was on the door. And the next morning, Pharaoh said, go, take everything you own and take anything else that you want, just go. And from that moment on, the Jewish people would celebrate the festival Passover. To remember, to remember, to remember not the Ten Commandments, not the law of God, to remember that this Night when God whispered to the nation, I just want you to trust me. And in trusting me, you will find your deliverance from slavery and Egypt, from chains and bondage. You will find freedom. And three weeks later, they're gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. Okay, now I'm going to give you some law. But make sure you don't forget the most important thing. I am the Lord your God. You are my people. I'm the one who delivered you from slavery. Now, now that we know that, here's some things that I want to tell you. As we learn to live together, I want to help you learn to live together. That we might grow together into one. The proper horizontal relationships, essential. The proper vertical relationship, essential. But the two of them together, essential all at once. And then he gave them their first commandment. The first thing, start with this. This is the, if you don't remember any of the other ones, this is the one I want in your head. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me to which collectively the whole nation went, yeah, I get it. You deliver us from slavery. You ensure that I have a future, that my children are going to have a future, that my grandchildren are going to have a future. We're going to have our own land. We're going to have our own leaders. And all you want is to make sure that we have no other gods before you? Oh, man, you can put a check in that box. Of course we're not going to have any other gods before you. Who can compete with a God who just wrecked the entire economy in Egypt? The most powerful nation in the world. He embarrassed Pharaoh who claims to be a God who delivered us from slavery. You are our God. Now here's something to think about. The Ten Commandments were a confirmation of, not a condition of, Israel's relationship with God. They were God's people before they did any of these 10 things. These were not things that needed to get done first. This was not an entrance exam. 1,500 years before Jesus, 2,100 years before the prophet Muhammad. As far as we can go back and connect law to God, this is the way God wanted it. It didn't have to be this way. It could have been conditional. Conditional. But in the very beginning, God made it completely clear to the nation of Israel, you are my people, even though you you have not done a thing to deserve it. And now that we have established this relationship, I want to teach you how to live together under my authority. So let's get to the basics. Let's get to the clarity right at the beginning. Don't get confused. Don't put a distraction in your life. Don't accept mixed messages. Don't have any other gods before me. What else do I need to do to demonstrate to you that you can trust me? If you've ever read the Old Testament, you might notice this. that Genesis can be kind of fun, you know? There's lots of stories, and then Exodus, more special effects than any other book in the Bible, right? It's got a lot of fun in there, and you get to the Ten Commandments in chapter... 20, that's right. But then you get to Leviticus, and that kind of throws you a little, right? And then there's Numbers and Deuteronomy. Hey, didn't we just already say all this stuff before? And then you work your way up to the prophets, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of their friends. And why does it seem that they're just saying the same thing over and over and over again? Why are there so many ranting, raving, angry men that are just condemning everything, and then in the midst of the ranting and the raving, they say this one little thing, this one little line, something nice, something good, and that's where a worship guy comes in and they pull that thing out and they make a song about that. And then it slides right back into the judgment kind of language. Why is it like that? Why does that go on? The prophets are evidence that God wasn't going to give up on his people even when they disobeyed his laws. Prophets are a display of God being a good parent. The prophets are all about God saying, one, two, don't make me stop this car, three. All right, you're in timeout. And time after time, the nations were put into timeout. And one time he even said, oh, I have warned you and I have warned you and you have ignored me and you have ignored me. So now I'm gonna put you in timeout for 70 years go sit in the corner over there in Babylon for seven years, but I'm going to bring you back. God stayed true. I'm not giving up on you. I choose you to be my people. I have worked on your behalf before you ever did anything for me. I did it all before you even gave me the first, before I even gave you that first thou shalt or thou shalt not. The history of Israel is a history of God saying, it's not the club model. It's the family model. With God, relationship precedes rules. God opts for the family model over the club model. That's how he treated the nation of Israel. The question you have to work with, deal with, think about is how does he treat you? The direction that we're moving today has something to do with you believing in this role of rules, that rules are a confirmation of, not a condition of, a relationship with God. He only gives rules to his kids, to his people. That is already, that he's already in relationship with. Now, if that's true, regardless of where you land, under whatever religious system that you want to uh, believe in, whatever thing that you, you've ascribed to, this, is, this thing is staggering. The nation of Israel is a model a model that says you can rebel and be disobedient. You can go too far left and you can go too far right. You can forget things. You can get things mixed up. You can have it not all fully worked out. You can even do your own thing. And God keeps coming back over and over again. He will keep disciplining and disciplining. He is disciplining not to pay you back for that stuff, but to bring you back like a good parent would. It's staggering. This says so much about the expansive wealth of God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace. But, but what if Abraham and what if the nation of Israel are, are just kind of aberrations? What, what, what if God plays favorites? What if God just liked Abraham? Abraham. He chose Abraham, he chose Israel, but he never said anything about Canadians. What if everybody just has to work at it really, really hard, and then one day, sometime later, God will tell us how we did? You got the commandments. Now get to work. Work your way in. You'll never really know if you are in. And to make sure of that, I'm not going to make anything clear enough for you to just know by yourself You won't know if I grade on a curve. Maybe some years I'm an easy marker and some years I'm a hard marker. What was good enough for them might not be good enough for you. And you can just spend your whole life doing the best that you can. No slip-ups. And I'll let you know at the day of judgment how you stand. There are many, many who live like that. Now add this idea into your base camp. As you are considering all of this and working it through, trying to identify what your starting point for faith looks like, factor this in. When God made the promise to Abraham that we have talked about in previous weeks, when God initiated this relationship with Israel, one thing is absolutely for certain, if you read the narrative yourself, so you should go and read the narrative yourself, but this was not about Abraham. And it wasn't even about the nation of Israel, it was about all mankind. All humanity, and here's how we know that. You remember that promise to Abraham? All the nations on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis eighteen eighteen. All the nations, not just the nation who you will become or the nations that you will become. And then the prophet Isaiah, later on, he would say to the nation of Israel, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Outflow, right? We spent a month on outflow because it fits right in the middle here. This is not just about the Jewish nation. From the beginning, for the always, it was always about for the whole world, all nations, but you will be like a signpost, a beacon, a lighthouse to the rest of the world, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Israel, I love you. Israel, I have chosen you. Israel, it's always been bigger than you. This is about the whole world. So we shouldn't be completely surprised that about 1,500 years after the giving of the law, Jesus walks onto the planet. What does he do? What does he do before he demands anything? He turns nature upside down. And he heals. And he stops storms. And he spoke to the wind and the wind listened. He does things that no one can imagine. He does things that no human being can do. He does things that the people closest to him were often terrified of his power. And then he says, trust me. Because the promise that God fulfilled to Abraham and the promise that God fulfilled through Israel is the promise for all men and all women. And it began with faith through Abraham as it continued by faith through the nation of Israel. So should we be surprised that such a message to the world would be extended by the prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ? So John who knew Jesus so well. John was the one, such a good friend. When Jesus is on the cross, he looks down and he says, John, take care of my mother. When John is writing it down, he says, what is it like to be around Jesus? This is what he wrote. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Behaved or believed? Club members, Employees, neighborhood association members, children, children of God. Jesus said, as God began a nation through Abraham, as God adopted the nation of Israel as his own, so that invitation to become a child of the living God has been extended to all humanity which means it's the family model, which means that anything I require of you is evidence of my love for you. Anything I ask you to do is evidence of the fact that we have a pre-established relationship and you can trust me because all along, it has always been all about you. because I love you. Now here's a question for you for this week. Talk to a couple of people or talk to someone else about this. Say it out loud, because it always sounds better when you say things out loud and you'll remember them better. Growing up, did you feel like this is not a theological discussion. Did you feel like religion was based on the family model, the club model, or the neighborhood association model? Did it feel like no matter what, nothing would change the relationship? Or did it feel like if you keep your end, your end of the bargain, things would work out okay, but if you don't, then you're out. Or did you never really know where you stood at all? Maybe God wouldn't throw you out, but you felt that he really didn't like you very much either. What kind of a church do you want to make exist in Stouffville? What model would you like to ensure happens if it's up to you in any way? That's the question I want you to think about this week. Kind Father, thank you. Ah, Thank you for loving us. Thank you for fighting for us before we asked. Thanks for coming after us. Thanks for being patient with us. Holy Spirit, now I ask again that you would speak to your people. Speak to your kids. Remind them that you love them. Remind them that what you ask is only pushing them in the right direction that it will be best. And so, God, we end by saying once again, God, help me to see as you see so that I can do as you say. Set me free, please. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Thanks for being with us today. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. And I am convinced and convicted that the more we connect, the better it gets. And the more we live out what God has called us to be and who he has called us to be. So today, as I send you out, I want to remind you that we are Christ-centered. We are Spirit-empowered, and we are mission-focused. And that mission that we are on is for everyone, everywhere, all the time,